You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, March 25th, 2010, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, good evening. How's everyone? Good. Great. How you doing, Ev? Good. Oh, you're talking to us? Oh, we're good. Yes. No, I'm talking to the wall. Rebecca is off this week, but it is not her fault. What happened was the power supply of my computer decided to short circuit for some reason. And I, uh, I was without a computer for a couple of days. We had to delay. At the last minute, we had to delay the recording date. And Rebecca had a previous engagement, something about libel reform in the UK. So unfortunately, she can't make it tonight. Steve, did you no. see and smell smoke? I did. I saw and and I heard that sound that you would you would hear on a soundtrack of e- this is the sound of electronics frying. That you know, I mean, it was literally and and you know, my the the lights on my computer were sort of flashing in time with the noise. Oh no. Yeah. So two days without a computer. Did you get like the DTs? It was rough. <laughs> it was rough. Uh, then I had to hook everything back. I have such a tangle behind my computer. And of course, I find a power supply that's hooked up to nothing. And I have no power memory. Power cord hooked up to power yeah, cord. It's like it's plugged in and there, it's, there's a end that should plug into something else, but I have no idea what, what it's like to plug into. What was it, like a camera or something? Like you did, how many years ago did you use that thing? Or an old hard drive or something. I don't know. Or maybe it was cloaked. You just couldn't see it. Right, right. You were connected to the cloud, obviously. Man, you're Damn lucky. That, your house could have caught on fire from that. Yeah, it was a good thing I was actually at my computer when it happened, so I could unplug yeah. it right away. Yeah. So we're back up and running. Back up and running. Yep. Tell us what's special about today, Evan. Well, it was 1903, and the Times newspaper, it doesn't say what country, though. I'll, I'll, maybe there's a Times newspaper in France, mm-hmm. because it was reported that French physicists Pierre Curie, assisted by Madame Curie, uh, communicated to the Academy of Sciences that recently discovered radium, and I'm quoting now, possesses the extraordinary property of continuously emitting heat without combustion, without chemical change of any kind, and without any change to its molecular structure, which remains spectroscopically identical after many months of continuous emission of heat such that the pure radium salt would melt more than its own weight of ice every hour. A small tube containing radium, if kept in contact with the skin for some hours, produces an open sore by destroying the epidermis and the true skin beneath, and the cause of death of living things whose nerve centers do not lie deep enough to be shielded from their influence. Oh, man, that that's scary. Radiation, baby. Radiation, yeah. It, it, wow. It's just weird to hear someone describe radiation that way. Right, like they have no idea what it is. Yeah. We're obviously familiar <laughs> right? with yeah. it. Just kind of describing kind of what it does and yeah, it could So do you guys think death, if you were exposed to enough radiation in order for it to do that to your skin, can, can that give you cancer and kill you as well? Oh, yeah. I think, it, I think it depends on the radiation, but yeah, my guess would be yeah. It'd certainly be a risk Ra- factor for cancer, yeah. Oh, man. And ra- radium, I mean... Yeah. I mean, I'm no chemist, but I understand that's pretty radioactive. And, and sadly, she died of radiation poisoning. Yeah. Yes. Took one for the team. Or how about those women who used to uh, <laughs> paint the phosphorus numbers onto, what was it, watches or some sort of devices? Yeah. And they would lick the tips of their brushes as they dip it in the uh, phosphorus and oh, yeah. paint it on, and they got poisoned. Ugh. How about that guy <laughs> that was, Steve, was it the guy that was selling radioactive 
water when they thought radiation was nifty and you know like sci-fi. Well, it was there was like a muscle man who was uh, a shill for radioactive tonic and which he drank and uh, eventually. Like his jaw was eaten away by radioactivity and oh. suffered horribly from it. I mean, didn't they remove his yeah. bottom jaw? Uh, yeah, or it just so. fell off. Ouch! Could you imagine? How how does one acquire radioactive liquid? What they would do is they would literally have like a a, a vase made out of radium, and your oh. instructions were to put water in it overnight and then drink water from the basin or vase or whatever. That's how they would do it. Come a long way in one hundred ten years. Yeah. One quick announcement before we get on to the news items. April 17th, Saturday, 10 a.m., New York City, the NexusCon, the Northeast Conference of Science and Skepticism. You can go to the NECSSCON.org and register for the event. So get tickets while some are left. The speakers this year include James Randi, DJ Grothy, Jamie Ian Swiss, George Hreb, Steve Mursky, David Gorski, Val Jones, John Snyder, Kimball Atwood, Julia Galliff, and the entire cast of the SGU. It's going to be a lot of fun. You can also register for a speaker's dinner where you get to sit down and have dinner with all of the speakers. Uh, so please check it out and register. It's coming up pretty quickly. So, Bob, tell us about the rise of the dinosaurs. Oh, no, where? Oh, you, you mean, okay, never mind. Yeah, this was a pretty cool story, um, news item. Any fifth grader can probably tell you how the reign of the dinosaurs ended, right? Aliens came down, they seeded the earth with human DNA and yep. ate all the dinosaurs. Wait, wait, that's not the consensus yet, is it? But, well, you know what it is. Well, if you ask the same kid how dinosaurs began their dominance, you'd probably get a, a puzzled look more than anything else. So it's a bit ironic that just last month, scientists made their most definitive statement yet about the fate of dinosaurs, that they almost certainly, right, they died from an asteroid yep. and not volcanism. Now, an international team led by Brown University paleobiologist Jessica Whiteside, they've concluded that the other end of the dinosaur reign, namely when they took over, was caused almost certainly from volcanism and not an asteroid, kind of the opposite. Right. Bob, when you so, say volcanism, um, what do you mean specifically? You know, Vulcans come... No, uh, it's just a volcano. <laughs> volcanoes, Jay. Just volcanoes and... and Look, I'm uh, just asking. Maybe, I guess... Don't that don't Yeah, just uh, volcanoes and... And, you know, vents in the earth that, that release lava, you know. If it, and they, sulfur they didn't, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, gases and stuff. Gases. Um, <laughs> 200 million years ago, the earth was a bit different than it is today, right? Most of the That's land masses, hear. yeah, most <laughs> of the land masses were smushed together into a supercontinent called Pangea. Pangea Thank you. Thank uh, which, which was actually, very good, Jay, which was just actually starting to break up, actually, about 200 million years ago. It, it had been together for quite some time. Well, all relationships back, ended back at some then. point, Bob. But also, at that time, 200 million years ago, Kurotarsans ruled the planet. Now, Kurotarsans were a branch of reptiles distinct from dinosaurs. You don't really hear too much about these guys. They actually coexisted uh, with with uh, dinosaurs and early you know, proto-dinosaurs for 30 million years. But the early dinos were probably second-class reptiles back then. Kurotarsans were the biggest, most dominant animals during the, the Triassic period. Even in terms of sheer diversity, they were they were ahead of their reptile cousins. Uh, then something happened. One of the great mass extinctions of all time occurred 
which ended the Triassic and ushered in the Jurassic. And uh, the scientists now believe that as the North America separated from the Africa plate, you know, imagine these two plates have been together for quite some time and they start separating because the tectonic plates are, are you know, slowly moving. So they're, they're slowly separating and, uh, and it, it creates a basin. As they're separating, there's a, there's a basin that, that is created between them and which of would later become the Atlantic Ocean. In this basin, there were fissures, which released greenhouse gases that wiped out half the plant species on the planet and many animals, including most of the Croatarsans. So that's pretty much what they think would happen. Um, but like any mass die-off, this opened up tons of ecological niches, right, for the dinosaurs to spread into and eventually led to their world domination for about, what, 200 million years. Uh, it was an amazing run that they had. Um, so all of this... All of this started then, not necessarily because they were inherently superior, as many people believed, um, but essentially they were really just lucky. Yeah. I'll give you a quote from Jessica Whiteside. Uh, she's the assistant professor of geological sciences. She said that um, they, had the, they had the blind luck of being unwittingly adapted to get through that climate catastrophe. How they did it is quite difficult to explain. So, so that little bit of luck paved the way for world dominance for millions of years. But we all know eventually, right, they met a similar fate to the Kuro-Tarsans. They were wiped out 65 million years ago, leaving only modern-day birds in their, in their wake. Um, the Kuro-Tarsans left a legacy as well. Uh, can you guys guess uh, what their legacy is? Um, 29. Close. You're very close, Jay. No, actually, you're, not, you're so far away, I don't know what to say. Their legacy is the 23 species of crocodiles, alligators, crocodiles. and gorilles uh, that, ex- that exist today. Um, and even the number 23 surprised me. There's actually there's 20, you know, you think crocodile, you think alligator. There's actually 23 species of those guys, so there's a lot. And, and boy, they were much more diverse 200 million years ago. Imagine if, uh, if they weren't wiped out. Uh, what you know the species that they would have evolved into so perhaps in tens of millions of years from now only a small residue of mammals will still be around my cynical side guesses that that residue will probably consist of robotic terminators looking for the last bit of biology to wipe out right now bob this is a consensus that's been building for a while because we i think we talked about this like a year ago the the fact that the dinosaurs were just lucky in terms of beating right. the tarsons out right uh, well, let's go on to another bit of paleontological news. This one is really interesting. Do you guys know how many different species of humans there have been on the Earth? How, uh, how many different species <laughs> of humans? Yes. Homo, it's homo sapien. Homo erectus. Erectus. Homo sapiens. Well, is Neanderthal part of it? Habilis. Oh, right. Habilis. Homo habilis. Ho- there's, there's a few of them, but I know there's one more. <laughs> So the genus has had, you know, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, Homo sapiens, but if uh, you're talking about close relative to Homo sapiens, now whether or not you call them like Homo sapiens neanderthalensis or Homo neanderthalensis is, Mm -hmm. I guess, still, I'm not sure if that's actually been finally settled, but I thought that there were two, you know, modern humans and Neanderthals. There's a third that's been controversial over the last few years, but the evidence the seems, Hobbit. seems to be heading towards the fact that the Hobbit, Homo floresiensis, uh, nicknamed the Hobbit, may be a third human species, uh, and a fourth what? was possibly just discovered. That's incredible. This is, this is where, really cool. This is really right? cool. Yeah, well, this is, the, the specimen is called Woman X. 
And really? Woman X, yes, <laughs> has not been named as a species yet. The, the specimen not. comes from Siberia about 40,000 years ago, and they managed to isolate some DNA, specifically mitochondrial DNA, from the – Hence the woman at the woman – Right. No, men and women both have mitochondria. Mitochondria, yeah, but, it's, but it's passed on. But mitochondrial yes. DNA is passed on through through the mothers. Yeah, it's only it's only inherited mostly ninety nine percent or so whatever right. through the, that's through my the point. maternal line. Yeah, but this <laughs> specimen that's not why we know this specimen's a woman though. But anyway, they're they're working on the nuclear DNA. They they, they haven't uh, nailed that yet. But they after analyzing the mitochondrial DNA, they basically were trying to figure out was this specimen a Neanderthal or uh, a modern human. And there's different genetic markers that we have now because we've, we've sequenced enough of the Neanderthal genome. Uh, and, it, and it actually was neither. It's clearly human, but not either Neanderthal or Homo sapiens. How awesome is that? It's a fourth species. And they estimate, now this kind of genetic estimation is, is rough, um, there, there's a lot of you know assumptions that go into the analysis, but based upon the genetic analysis, they estimate that this lineage broke off from the human lineage from our our, our ancestors about one million years ago. Whereas Whoa. Neanderthals split that's off big. about five hundred thousand years ago, about half a million years ago. Uh, yeah, that's a long time ago, and yet it persisted till about forty thousand years ago. You know, because you saw 40,000 years uh, ago, there were four living human species. Damn, we missed out. Yeah. That would have been so cool if there were, there were more humans. Yeah, within about 5,000 years, three of them went extinct, and, and we were the only ones left. Wow. So, Steve, if, it, if they existed that short amount of time ago, how come we haven't found more fossils? Yeah, that's a good question. So, th- they think that this uh, probably represents a completely separate... Um, migration of hmm. early human ancestors out of Africa. And then for a million years, they lived in isolation, becoming their own species, but then died out, you know, 40,000 years ago. So it, it, it seems as if, you know, each one of these human species may, you know, have been genetically isolated and formed, you know, their own species because they were separate migrations out of Africa. Yeah. It probably is just that their range was not very far. You know, they may have settled in around Siberia, but not spread out to, you know, like Asia and Europe and whatever, to to the point that we would find a lot of their sites. But the fossil sites that we have are so sporadic, it makes you wonder, I mean, are there, maybe there are some of their sites out there, you know, that, that are waiting to be discovered. I hope so. Well, you'd figure there'd be more near the location where they found the original, right? You would. I mean, be, obviously, it would be a good place to look. I mean, I'm uh, sure you can yeah. bet your yeah, your butt that they're going to start. They're sure. going to start looking. Steve, did they find it by accident, or did they predict that they would find something like this near there? Oh, I don't Can't think anyone predicted, predicted this. Yeah, this oh, is totally out of the blue that there's a new species. It uh, was a pinky bone, right? Just a pinky, pinky bone. Yeah. You know, what? it's a good thing that I don't stumble on these bones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most <laughs> most people would not recognize what they are. I probably wouldn't even be able no to recognize it as a bone if I saw it, you know? I just wouldn't even... Well, now we have mitochondrial DNA from Neanderthals, right? Yes. Okay, so did anyone mention uh, how different they were, f- you know, in, in comparison? You know, is it vastly different from either of the other two, or is it 
closer to Neanderthal than us or closer to us? Did any any hint of that kind of relationship come uh, out? It's different from both. Um, it, you would imagine that it, since it split off half a million years before Neanderthals and humans split off, it should You're be right. distant from the two, from the two, right? Right, right. Hmm. And it looks like there there were a lot of other hominid bones in the cave that they're investigating, not not just a pinky bone. Uh, and there were human settlements in the area as well. Interesting. Yeah. That's from, c- contemporary? I mean, th- were they contemporaries? Probably because it says that there's, that there was occupation in that area for about 125,000 years. So it probably overlapped, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Very I cool. Hope find, I hope cool. we find some more. I want to I yeah. see what they – I mean, they, it makes wanna... sense. Evolution's a bush, not a ladder, right? So yeah. you, know, there's, you expect these kind of speciation events to happen. And humans were – in the process of uh, migrating around the world. So I would expect you're going to get isolated, mm. you know, populations here and there form, you know, forming enough differences to be a different subspecies or species. So it kind of makes sense that we're going to find this. And maybe a fifth one someday. Yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised, you know, uh, on some island somewhere or just in one region, you know, if they were isolated long enough, you, you, you'd expect that. So it would not be surprising at all. Uh, well, let's move on to the next item. Uh, this is also a paleontological item. I guess it's a sort of a theme this week, but this one's a fake item. <laughs> right, I, right, Evan? Can you, can you spot the fake? That's right. We have an update on the Star Child Project. And I have some theme music to go It's actually with. a project? It's like the Alan Parsons Project. There's a star waiting in the sky. There you go. <laughs> Some of our listeners might remember that tune from the 70s called Starman. So we've adopted that as the official theme music for the Star Child Project update. Now, who knew there was a Star Child Project update? I thought this thing was put to bed so many years ago. Oh, no. Lloyd Pye's not giving up on this thing. No Lloyd way. Lloyd Pye is the man responsible, <laughs> responsible <laughs> for this. So here's what he has. He has in his possession a skull. A skull, a child, uh, skull of a child, and it uh, shows some pretty, you know, interesting malformations. Uh, mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like a swollen head. The facial cavities are kind of all crushed in towards the middle. Lord Pye believes that this is evidence of a uh, of an alien race or an alien race that visited uh, Earth and co-mingled with humans, shall we say. So a hybrid of, of some kind. Half it's a hybrid. Half human. Yeah, I would imagine that uh, <laughs> if it looks so similar to a normal human skull, a normal child's human skull, yeah, there has to be some kind of mix, right? Like, What else would the, what else would the explanation be? What else could the explanation be, in fact? Right. It, it, interestingly, so yeah, this is, this is a, um, taken at face value, right? Um, there are those who have accused this of, of actually being like a, a hoax or a fraud. But if we say, all right, the skull itself is genuine, and it, I think it dates to about 600 years ago. Uh, 900 years ago. 900 years plus, ago. Thank plus you. or minus 40 years. Yep. 900 years ago. Uh, it has all of the anatomical features of a human skull, but distorted or deformed. Right. They're all there. There's the parietal bone, the temporal bone, the frontal bone. They're they're all there, just just deformed. The Occam's razor, I think, would dictate that this is therefore a deformed human skull, right? 
there's there's no pieces that are not supposed to be there. There's no significant pieces missing. It's just you know if you were able to like take a picture of a human skull in Photoshop and then move everything around, you know this is you could get up get to something like this. Right. Plus, it's made of bone too. It's not made out of some funky material. Yeah, well, they, not, they not claim bone. that there are these red fibers in there, but again, we don't have any analysis of them to tell us what they are. Although we do have the claim from Lloyd Pye that he has shared it with 50 experts, and mm-hmm. he won't tell us who any of these experts are, but that's okay. He, he's consulted 50 experts on, on it, and none of them can adequately explain the star child's appearance mm-hmm. on the basis of any kind of natural deformity. Right. Uh-huh. Can you spot the logical fallacy? Yes. <laughs> Pi's entire approach to this project is a massive argument from ignorance. And he makes that fallacy over and over again. Initially, they tried to extract um, nuclear DNA from from the bone. And uh, they were able to extract... Mitochondrial DNA. Well, they were, they, were able to get, they were able to get mitochondrial DNA that was from a human... And, and it seems as if that was the that was the kid's mother. They were unable to to extract nuclear DNA. This was a few years ago. And Lloyd Pye's conclusion was the reason they couldn't extract nuclear DNA proves that it's not human. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> um, the, so yeah. the lack of evidence is evidence that this is not human. Uh, wow. right, right out of the gate, you make a discovery like this. You bring it to you know quote unquote experts, right? You let scientists yep. look at it that do yeah. this for a living, that have been doing it for a long time, which he, he's failed to do. No. You know, he's not. I disagree. I disagree. You find something like this, you put it on eBay. This Smithsonian will pay you eBay. more for this than than most people would imagine paying on eBay. But the, yeah. well, then they could they could bid on it. The they point could, is, though, bid. the point being that right out of the gate, he's he's made. Poor decisions on top of poor decisions, and that's if he's actually even being honest at all, which I doubt. Well, Jay, I think the, I, I, it's a good point, and I think uh, the, the maybe a larger point to all this is that Lloyd Pye has some preconceived notions, right? And he is um, emphasizing certain points that you know help him try to make his case, and he downplays mm-hmm. uh, any evidence that contradicts what his personal values is in you know invested in in this whole star child project so he's biased he's horribly biased from oh the yeah go and that taints everything remember no. this is the guy who wrote the book everything you know is wrong right this guy <laughs> thinks that everything scientists say is is completely wrong and, you know yeah. he wants to rewrite history and rewrite science uh, oh one of those he's, he's a total crank this guy bottom line but so, but just last week and I'll read it in his own words. Lloyd Pye says, "We finally have a recovery of nuclear DNA from the star okay. child." So, w- w- so that's the what update. scientist confirmed it? Where's this? Where, where's the information? Okay. Well, he met with the geneticist working on the star child's DNA, and he notes, "I, I, I sh- and I'm quoting, and I should add that I can't reveal the name of the geneticist or where he works until we are ready to formally present his results." Of to course, the because that would ruin everything. Uh, yeah, this right. guy. This so guy again, is more- full of shit. There you go. He, he is totally. He is. He's totally marketing himself. This is all hype and no substance. Probably, yeah. All right. So he admits, you know, back in 2003, they had a DNA analysis that used human-only primers to recover the mitochondrial DNA, right? Which is the DNA outside the nucleus. But at the time, they could not recover it because the technology at the time, I guess, was limited. Lame. Enough. 
Right. But now in 2010, there have been many improvements in the recovery process. Those improvements have been applied to the star child skull with a stunning result. And he throws up some charts and he talks about uh, sequencing and base pairs. Um, Steve, this is where you're probably going to have to jump in and explain a little bit. But essentially what he is saying is that there's a strand of 342 base pairs to which they are not able to match it up to any animal in the NIH database, which contains, I guess, all this information on all kinds of animals and their genetic codes. Right. I mean, Pi says every animal in the world, and that's wrong, right? I mean, (laughs) so he's trying to say that this database basically contains the genetic information of all living things on Earth, and since this thing can't be matched to anything in the the database, that proves this is DNA not Uh, from the Earth. Oh, wow, this guy's a a genius. Again, we don't know what this is, therefore it's an alien. No, we don't know what this is, therefore what? We don't know what it is. And plus, 342 base pairs is nothing. That's he, tiny. Well, that, no, could, that it, could just it, be junk DNA that it's not coding for anything that we know. You know that's, Lloyd Pye believes that to be a stunning and apparently ver- uh, incredibly rare right. occurrence. Now, the thing is, you can have- I mean, that is long enough to match up to, to known. You know, we should be able to see. If we were a human, we should be able to find out where that's supposed to match up along the human genome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, certainly it, there could be things mixed in there that are not from not from people, and it wouldn't necessarily be in that database. Who knows? They could have got. I mean, they described the process. They're supposed to get rid of any contamination. But if any bacterial DNA got in there, you know that that would throw it off. Also. This analysis has not been peer-reviewed. We don't even know who the geneticist is. There's no, there's <laughs> no transparency here whatsoever. He could be making this up wholesale. Yeah, well, we don't have no idea. Or it could just be incompetence. It could have been problems with the, with the process. You know, who knows? And there's, there, this is a negative result. This is just nothing. Now, here's the other thing. He he's consulting all he consults all these experts, yeah. right? But if you read the, for those experts who have actually like you can say this is a quote of Doctor So and So, most of them are saying things which are are don't have anything to do with whether or not this is a human or an alien hybrid. Just like this is nine hundred years old from the carbon fourteen dating. That's what exp- right. you know, expert A is saying. That's one expert. Another one saying that the you know the, this looks like it comes from a child you know based on the teeth maybe five to six years old. That's another expert. Mm-hmm. So, but none of they're not saying anything that bears at all on whether or not this is a, a deformed human versus a human alien hybrid. But he's counting them among the experts. There's only one so-called expert, a craniofacial surgeon, who is actually. Who has allegedly inv- examined the skull directly and and ruled out all of the the known you know medical deformities that could explain the skull? It's just this one guy, you know, and we don't and who seems to be invested in this, right? And we don't really know what his expertise is. Hardly a scientific. I mean, consensus. if you think about the yeah. hoopla that this guy's making over a deformed skull, it's yeah. just a deformed skull. Obviously, the kid. If if this is a real skull, it was a child that had some type of genetic disease. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it could be, in fact, a very interesting skull from a medical, you know, historical point of view. Maybe there were two things going on. Uh, you know what I mean? Like maybe he had hydrocephalus and, and they bound his head. Maybe they thought that was a treatment for the hydrocephalus. Uh, or he had some genetic disorder with, with, that had megancephaly, you know, an enlarged head. Or, or whatever. I mean, it's some unique mutation that, that, uh, you know, that we don't see anymore for some reason. And, and Steve, they discovered uh, a Y chromosome in the mm-hmm. mix. So they knew it was a boy, mm-hmm. right? hence the Y chromosome. And nothing Lloyd Pye offers goes to explain how the Y chromosome got in there. Right. So the Y he chromosome had to come that. from a human male. And he, he also had a it. human mother. And somehow Pi, you know, argues in his head that that means the the father was alien. You know what's so yeah. uh, what's so sad is if they just brought this skull to to one of the thousands of experts on the planet that you know give them an hour with it and they'll give you an arm's length list of reasons why everything he says is full of shit. Right? Like it's just that easy. <laughs> if this were serious, this would require some transparent scientific analysis, not this shenanigans that he's going through. And also, the skull doesn't have a provenance. You know what I mean? We don't know like who dug it up when in, in, with a dated yeah. archaeological find. You know what I mean? It sort of came yeah, this, out of nowhere, and that's always... Yeah, the backstory behind it is fuzzy. No one's exactly sure how he got a hold of yeah. this thing. It's, skull comes you know, out of nowhere no... and ends up in the hands of a notorious crank. What are the right. odds, you know, of that happening? Plus, let's not ignore, you know, the elephant in the room with Pi's argument. He's saying that there's alien DNA and that it would be compatible <laughs> with human right. DNA so that you can have an, an actual hybrid, right? That's just completely implausible. As, as Sagan said, you would have a, an easier time crossing a human with a petunia than, than anything that evolved <laughs> off this it. earth. You know, even mitochondria, which are symbiotic in our own cells, their DNA is slightly off from the nuclear DNA and wouldn't be able to interbreed. You know what I mean? So it's just absurd on its face. Um, I want to read to you the last little part of the uh, the announcement that he sent out. And uh, here's what he said. Uh, the expenses for material during our research has now outstripped the amount donated uh, by the list. It's now coming out of my pocket. I could use some help to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. But we're close, right? I mean, where have we heard that before? Oh, God, we're close. We're about to make this announcement. Yeah. Um, we're just short on some funds. Maybe if we could get some people to reach into their pocket, you know, it'll, it'll help carry us over the finish line here. Where yep. have we heard that right, before? Right. Dennis Lee. So he's taking a page out of, uh, you know. <laughs> it's just so right t- although, although I have to say, legitimate researchers do that too. I mean, when they're, you know, okay. they're applying for their next cycle of funding, right? This is like that joke. Yes. It's like, yeah, in five <laughs> years, we'll have solved all of our problems. Mm-hmm. You know, in the next you know, funding cycle, we will have achieved X, Y, and Z. So anyway, anyone looking <laughs> for funding is going to play that game a little bit. Except it would be nice if he had something to bring to the table at this point and then ask for money. He's got... Right, but, he's, but, but if you're going to ask for mon- money, you should have complete transparency, which, yes. we don't, which we don't have here. So that's the update on the Star Child. Yeah, and you know, he, of course he promises when the analysis is complete, they'll go public, including the, you know, the name of the geneticist who's doing the analysis. So yeah, we'll see when the data is all presented, yeah. but I'm not holding my breath. Well, let's move on to Who's That Noisy? Who's that noisy? Should we play last week's Who's That Noisy? No, we don't need to hear that again. 
Yeah, we do. I'll just I'll is. make the noise. Ready? Very interesting one this week, Evan. What was that? Jiffy Pop popcorn. No. Uh, <laughs> but uh, on a tangent to that, ever heard of popcorn shrimp? Ever heard of snapping shrimp? I have. Alpheus heterocalius. What are they cooking in like an Alfredo sauce or what do we got? Right? Mm, delicious. They're found in tropical and temperate seas. They're about two inches long, these shrimp. Uh, they have claws that grow to half the size of their entire body length. And it's the claws that give off that snapping mm-hmm. sound. And when you get a lot of these things together, oh, man, it gets loud. <laughs> so those are actually the, the shrimp's tiny little claws making that noise when, like, thousands of them do it, right? Yep. And and it's been known that these when you get a lot of these things together and it does it is making that that sound all together it's it uh interferes with sonar of naval vessels wow right i mean so imagine that yeah it's, i think it's supposed to be the loudest animal noise that you know a, a group of them doing that all together yeah the greatest sound density of any animal yeah um at, hmm. at least underwater from what i could tell i couldn't tell if it if that right. meant all right. animals but there was one person who got it correct and from the message board, wow. Worm Guy. Hey, Worm Guy. Worm Guy. Yeah, a lot of wrong guesses this this week, I know. A lot of wrong yeah, guesses. That was tough. But that was, what, what, yeah, but that what was What were some of the guesses? A lot of burning uh, this and burning that, you know. Right. It sounded like a crackling, crackling fire of fire or something. Yeah. And what do you got for this week? This week, we have the following. So, see if you can name this noise. First, here. we learn from Bernoulli that when a moving fluid like air encounters a constriction that is a narrow space, the velocity increases. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, man, that guy's awesome. <laughs> He's so off the hook, right? Oh, man, that sounds so familiar. Didn't it, yes. Steve? Oh, man. It should, yeah, it should be familiar to, I think, you guys. That's a good one, Evan. All right, let's do a couple of questions. Uh, the first question comes from Bill Ellis from Greensboro, North Carolina. And he uh, wrote a rather long email, but I'm going to cut to the end where he makes the point that I want to address. He writes, now for something critical I've been wanting to write you about for a while. Sometimes I wish you guys at the podcast would realize that many of your listeners are not scientists. Probably many are curious evangelical Christians like myself who enjoy the debate and the topical content of the podcast but don't like being called names or ridiculed. I've learned a lot from you guys, but I've also had to learn to filter out some of the attitude the generalizations and judgments you dish out to get to the good stuff from the podcast. We are evangelical Christians, but we're people too, and that was not factor in the very difficult decision we made to homeschool. We can't wait to take our kids to see the Spitzer Human Origins exhibit in D.C. this year. Please don't assume that most homeschoolers are ignorant of the truth of evolution or other such topics. We can't control what the book publishers put out. So what do you say, guys? Open up your tent just a bit. We're listening, too. So it's always interesting for us to get feedback yeah. from people who are not your typical skeptics, you know, the people who are in yeah. the skeptical community that, that we're usually, whether consciously or, or unconsciously, talking to when we're doing the podcast. But we do know that there are believers um, of all stripes who, who listen to the podcast 
we occasionally get emails, and we've read, I think, a couple, at least a couple of them on the show from people who say that uh, they started listening to the show expecting to disagree with us, and then you know we sort of won them over to the skeptical point of view, and and we we definitely want to be accessible to to people who are not already skeptics, uh, although you know we we know that they're our core audience. I wrote back to Bill to uh, to thank him for writing and also say that you know we do uh, part of the the purpose of our show is to try to open up the tent, if you will, of, of the skeptical movement, but also uh, to let him know that we we do very consciously walk a fine line, very deliberately. There are those who deserve ridicule, and we don't pull our punches when it comes to criticizing pseudoscience or anti science. Uh, we, however, we we tend to reserve our you know our harsh criticism for the promoters of pseudoscience, for people who are actively out there you know either trying to weaken the teaching of science or evolution in the public schools or uh, you know like Don McElroy for example in Texas, people who are engaged you know with the public debate, not your rank and file believer, right? Not the average person, you know. We're trying to educate them. That's our that's our only goal. We also do try, although I admit we probably fail from time to time, to re- to really focus on the arguments, not the people. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you might say that like creationism is dumb. It doesn't necessarily mean that every creationist is dumb. It just, I think it usually, my in my opinion, most creationists are just misinformed. You know, grossly misinformed most of the time, and that's something that's fixable. You know, that's fixable with education. Whether they'll be open to, you know, information from another source is is another matter. Yeah. See, the emailer is right, though. I mean, I, I, I could speak for myself on this one. I'm, I think my attitude from time to time dips in to cynicism and derision on the show. Sure, and I I, I admit it. You know, I I don't want to be biased, and I try not to be. It you know, and I, I just hope that. Anyone that listens to the show understands that uh, you know. I think we all have our own opinions and bias and everything that we, you know, we try to keep out, keep out the politics and religion as much as possible. But it sneaks in. Yeah, I think that you know. Again, the other thing to consider is that uh, in the broader society, skeptics, you know, self-identified skeptics and non-believers are in the minority, and often feel as if we are a beleaguered minority. You know, it's and therefore when. Whenever you get a group like that together, you know we tend to to cater to our worldview. You know, part of you yeah. know, and definitely we, we. I think we consciously are celebrating the skeptical worldview. There's no question about that, and we're actually very consciously trying to make it okay for skeptics to be outspoken. You know, and, and we will often get emails from people it's like, "Oh, what do I do?" Like we just got an email from a, a high school student who said that. You know, a Scientologist from Narconon came into the class and started like teaching them nonsense, you know, about you know drugs being all poisons and things like that. And he wanted to know what to do. Like, you know, dude, complain. You know, tell your parents. Go complain to the principal. Uh, yeah. You know, your teacher wittingly or unwittingly allowed a a shill for a dangerous cult to, to come into the schools to spread their ideology. And you're the skeptic, you know, who knows what, who sees it for what it is, you know, if, you, if you're up to it, do something about it, you know? Yeah. So, you know, that, that's also part of our show as well. Yeah, so it's, there's a little bit of a culture clash going on. I, I do give Bill credit for 
putting up with that and, and yeah. being patient yeah. enough oh, yeah. to listen to the good bits, you know, the, where we're just talking about science and not more of the cultural stuff. You're right, Steve. Most people in Bill's situation would hear us and turn us off. Yeah. You know, probably 99% of them. Yeah, I, I agree with, with what you said, Steve. I'd like to add to the idea, like the celebration of skepticism on the show. You know, one thing that we also do is we're celebrating our relationship too here. Like we, you know, like a lot of our listeners know, we have all been family and friends for a very long time. And, you know, we speak this way with each other in private as well. Like, we're, you know, yeah. this is the way we are with each other and, and the kind of stuff we talk about. So we're, we are definitely unguarded. And, uh, but I think that's part of the charm of our show as well. Yeah, you know, that is. Well, that it's is unscripted. It's open, and you know we have to keep it real. You know, to some extent, we have to be ourselves. And you know, while we try to focus on cogent arguments, facts, and logic, and and be you know understanding, you know, yeah. rather than insular, there's also an edginess to our discussions that you know we you know, we we know that we're risking offending people sometimes but i think if we sucked all of the life out of our show in order to never offend anybody it would it wouldn't be the same right we do like to have fun and we do have similar senses of humor which yeah. i think comes through in the show as right. well and adds to the uh, flavor right Definitely. i wonder was bill listening when perry was on yeah <laughs> yeah he, Perry absolutely didn't care about offending people. I mean, and it, it, somehow that was charming, though. He pulled he pulled that off. I don't know. However, Perry also could turn the charisma way down and just be really nasty. And he didn't do it on the show, but I've seen Perry. Wow, when Perry pulled out the knife and wanted to cut someone with words, he could do it. Yeah, and he was expert at it. <laughs> right, <laughs> but it and but he never did it based on anyone's you know religion, faith belief system or anything like that. It was one more stupidity. Clo- close, yeah. One of his closest friends is, a, is an ordained priest. Well, he married a Jehovah's sake. Witness. Yeah. You know, wow. He shocked all of us. That says a lot. <laughs> sure I, for, I forgot about that. Wow. <laughs> right? No, Perry, did, Perry didn't care. Perry, you know, just he cared about what people, you know, how they argued. But yeah, he was high tolerance for, for people having whatever belief systems they have. Well, let's go on. One more email. This one's actually a name, not logical fallacy. And this one comes from Giles Corey, who writes, also a religious theme to this question. Uh, As I've listened to all your programs, I've noticed that whenever the Roman Catholic Church expresses its doctrine regarding the sanctity of human life, usually in the context of embryonic stem cell research, one or more rogues frequently makes some comment about the Church's sorry history of child sexual abuse-related cover-ups and subsequent legal cases, as if the Church's horrible failure in one area robs it of all credibility on other issues. This strikes me as some sort of logical fallacy, but is it an ad hominem, poisoning the well, a red herring, or a generic fallacy? He actually wrote a genetic fallacy. I'm assuming he meant generic. <laughs> love, love your shows. Keep up the great work. Giles Curry from Salem, Massachusetts. So thanks, Giles. Or is that Giles, do you think? Go with Giles. Go with Giles. Giles? Giles like Giles? Because Giles. So, of Buffy. So, uh, right. yeah, this is an interesting name, not logical fallacy, partly because it's kind of turned back on us. I think what Giles is describing is closest to poisoning the well, Right. If you're saying if if you made the argument that the church's stance on stem cell therapy or stem cell research uh, is wrong or shouldn't be taken seriously because of the child sexual abuse scandals, that would be a an ad hominem logical fallacy. 
Um, if you're just trying to say, you know, you know, we shouldn't be taking them seriously, that's kind of a poisoning the well, which is very closely related to ad hominem. But I don't think that we're doing that in either case, and, and this is why. When, when we've brought up that point, it's specifically to point out the fact that the church is often inconsistent in how they apply their own moral rules, right? So if they're saying, if they're justifying their stance on stem cell research with a certain morality, but then they turn around and in another context, they actually turn away from those same you know, moral premises, uh, that shows an inconsistency, an internal inconsistency. And I think that's absolutely valid to point that out. It doesn't mean they're wrong about stem cells. It just means that they're not even being consistent in the application of their own rules, their own justification. So there's probably something with their own arguments, right, if, if, if they're not being consistent in how they apply their premises. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. It's trick these moral issues, you know, in which there is not, you know, we're not dissecting something that's purely scientific here. You know, there is, there's a huge moral component to, to the question right. of... Uh, embryonic stem cell research and how that relates into different people's worldviews. Yeah. But this is, you uh, know, so it, it, it's tricky. Yeah, this is, it is tricky. And, you know, so we, we often will get feedback. We've dealt with this before, but it's worth mentioning again, because we still on a regular basis get feedback where because we call somebody a name uh, or we, you know, we characterize somebody as being gullible or whatever or crank, that that's an ad hominem logical fallacy. And it's important to point out that it's only a logical fallacy if you put it in the, in the, in the uh, context of somebody is wrong because of some negative attribute that they have. Mm-hmm. But just saying that they have a negative attribute isn't a logical fallacy, mm. right? And poisoning the well is is the same thing, but even a little bit trickier in my opinion. Like just previously, we were talking about Lloyd Pye, and I pointed out that he wrote the book, you know, Everything You Know Is Wrong. That doesn't mean that the star child is not a human-alien hybrid, right? But it means – but it does it, put him in context but a little bit better, it, doesn't it? Exactly. Doesn't it, puts, it? It puts it into context. The guy who apparently you know, came into the possession of this skull and is overseeing the research has a lot of really wacky ideas about science. And, and that shows us that there's some systematic flaw in his methodology. And that absolutely is a legitimate context to put this in. Um, if the evidence were there, it would trump that, right? I mean, if the, you know, if it were objective, verifiable, transparent evidence, that will trump everything. But while we're trying to get a handle on the, on, on this story and how seriously we should take it, that absolutely is a meaningful context and not, I, I, I don't think poisoning the well, but we, we frequently get that feedback. It's a little bit trickier than I think a lot of people think. Well, we had originally recorded an interview with Eugenie Scott for this week's episode, but unfortunately, due to technical problems related to my fried power supply we talked about earlier in the show, uh, the interview did not come through. So we are going to play an interview that we did at TAM7 with George Crabb, and we will have Jeannie Scott on the show soon. We are sitting at 
Ham 7, and we are joined now by George Rabb. George, welcome back to the Skeptics Guy. Oh, it's, has it been a year? It yeah. has. Is that amazing? Oh, that, yeah. That was a long year. It's Gosh. been a year since we sat here and cried over dead Yeah, no tears. Oh. That's <laughs> right. I was about First to bring that topic. Up. First <laughs> thing we're going to bring up, really? Happy, happy, happy days. These well, happy days. We should mention, you know, it was the first time we had had George on the show. Mm. And that was one of the biggest shows we ever did, popularity-wise. We got so many emails mm-hmm. from people who loved you. Oh, well, that's very nice. Yeah. And I know a lot of, yeah, a lot of people talked about uh, that having a certain impact on, on people in similar situations. Yeah. So. Yeah, we, everybody was broken down crying <laughs> in their car and on the train. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes these podcasts and some of the subjects we talk about, they, they, they don't shine very much on the human angle of things, the emotion, the, the heart. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of a special treat when we can touch on those on those things, and they are germane and relevant. Yeah, and the only really sad part is that that album is still not released yet. So <laughs> I'm still working on it, which is, which is yeah, its own level of sadness. Oh. But uh, we're working on it, working on it. So yeah, that song will be available very very soon. But that gets to the bigger issue. I think Rebecca, you were talking about this on another interview that we need more artists in the skeptical movement. Mm. You know, and because music and and other forms of art do you have them directly jack into our emotions more than purely intellectual arguments. Right, do. right. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, not just artists. I mean, that's something that we talk about. Uh, I get asked all the time. You know, I think that comes up often in panel questions to what can I do? Someone will say that. Okay, yeah, I live in whatever, Topeka. What can I do? And I always say, whatever your skill set is, whatever that thing is that you do, um, someone needs you to do that within our community mm-hmm. right. whether it's stuffing envelopes or putting labels mm-hmm. on on things or being a doorman or or you know designing a website or whatever it is my particular skill set is yeah i can you know write a song every now and then and maybe be an mc for a talent show let's say that happens to be my thing and and i will gladly give my time to the to the community but yeah the importance of of art uh, uh hopefully is is paramount in any culture and the Skeptical movement shouldn't be free of that just because it's a you know scientifically based mm-hmm. thing, and I think you can so you can, you can make your point so much more uh, effectively sometimes through a joke or a song or a lyric or a or a picture or a movie mm-hmm. or yeah. a whatever. Absolutely, um, you know, humor to me is still the best delivery system for information. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of what I know about European history and philosophy is through Monty Python. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, you know, I will never, never not know the philosopher's song, you know, and be able to sing that and know who these people are and that they're philosophers. So, you know, that, that, that is how I learned most of what I learned about, you know, history in general is through that kind of stuff. So I agree. We were talking at the science-based medicine panel. We played the, the homeopathy skit, the Mitchell and Webb look. Have you seen that? Oh, yes. And in two and a half minutes of humor, they did more to probably change minds about homeopathy Absolutely. than me writing about it for a year. You know, and, Because it's not the preaching thing. Yeah, I think sometimes information comes across as preachy, even in the best of, in- of intentions, you know. And so a defensive mechanism always gets raised, whereas when it's entertainment, people want to give you, often they want to give you the, the opportunity to entertain them. So that wall comes down. Uh, so, you know, you've, you're still working on the album and yes. getting that out. What yes. else have you got going on? Well... Uh, there's always the funk band, which is uh, sort of the the, the working thing, uh, the album we're working on, and then uh, the podcast. We have this the weekly geologic podcast, which is still trucking along. Uh, we're at episode uh, 122. Jeez, yeah, which nice. we just put up this week. Um, I was just saying this before. Uh, the podcast is something that I've done. How can I put this? The, it's the most consistent thing I've done in my life ever, apart <laughs> from 
you know, brushing my teeth. Breathing and stuff. Yeah, yeah breathing, yeah. you know, <laughs> apart from some kind of cleaning. Well, that too, yeah, but that's, yeah. <laughs> you didn't have did, to go there. Did you ever think, wow, did you ever think, like, when you were 13 and, like, you know, just whipping it into a frenzy that at, at almost 40 you'd still be doing that? Did you ever get to that point? Did you ever, like, could, you, could you imagine, like, as a kid, yeah. you, you're sitting no. there, really? I was like, I'm going to do this the rest of my life. Really? Every, no, for me, for why, why aren't I doing this every hour? I thought, I thought this was, this is like, this, this will hold me over until, like, you know, right. maybe some relationship kicks in. <laughs> Absolutely, I totally agree with you. But, like, yeah. Yeah. other then, people would be doing that, not right, me. Right. Yeah. And you catch yourself at 38 in the shower going, like, okay, well, yeah. okay, you know what? Well, I'm okay with this, yeah. but it is surprising. Maybe it's yeah. different for girls because the first time I did it, I was like, well, I don't need boys. It's funny because I, yeah. I, I said the same thing. Yeah, when, when actually, when we did the interview last year, I actually don't remember if I listened to your podcast before I ever did that interview. I believe why, I was the only one, <coughs> the only George fan. Mm. But in yeah. the last year, I think I've listened to every one of your oh, podcasts really? oh in gosh. the last year. I've okay. definitely, you're, you're, yeah. I have to say yours is one of my, yours, your podcast is one of my favorite to listen oh, to. Oh, thank you. And it's a, it's a really, I think it's a performance piece. It really yeah. is. Yeah. You know, it's awesome. And <laughs> it's a kind word for crap. No, <laughs> no I mean, it is. It's like, it's wow, art. It's more art as opposed to good. <laughs> <laughs> we shoot more for conceptual as opposed to actually entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But by what I, I mean, you, you do a lot of post-production, it seems. Yeah. You do a lot more like mixing in mm-hmm. sounds. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, wow, I, I like the way you did that, I mean, right. you know, even just like Ask George and you have like mm-hmm. different barking dogs or something. Right, right. It's, I could see there's sort of a, there is an artistic element, I think, to every little piece that you throw in there. Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's sort of a, a, a radio show type mm-hmm. thing that's kind of post-produced a little bit. And there are recurring bits, which I enjoy, Religious Morning of the Week. Um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, Ask George, which again is a very humble, you know, lousy Colin kind of show thing. Uh, my most popular, or one of my most favorite bits is, uh, is uh, Geo's Mom Reads Jay-Z Lyrics. Yes. <laughs> where, you know, my mom my actual mother calls in and she reads lyrics from Jay-Z and then it's just an excuse for us to kind of, you know, BS together and just talk right. about what's going on. Um, I did a live, the first time ever we did a live one uh, where mm-hmm. she called in to Balticon and uh, everyone was so excited, you know, they're like, <laughs> oh, George's mom is calling, she's calling. Uh, and that was great and she was nervous and, and it was very nice. Um, to, to get back to what I was saying, just the the consistency of it and how I've done, you know, every, I think I've skipped in two years Last week, I, I skipped a show because I was getting my element presentation ready. But apart from that, I think I've skipped one other show in, in the two and a half years. Um, Slacker. I tell you, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but it's such a nice – just to have that be reason to continue. Yeah. I, I'm of that whatever I – don't, I don't know if it's a manic personality or whatever it is or, or, or just ret- – I don't know if it's anal. It's some kind of retention, yeah, because I'm not anal in, in it by any – I know I look anal, but I'm, I'm really not. Um, <laughs> you look put together. Put together? Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. <laughs> I want some put together action later. But um, uh, I, I – that is enough to kind of continue – to do it week after week, mm-hmm. and then you have a fan base like you guys know. I mean, yeah. you feel not beholden, but it's you a hungry feel... beast that constantly needs feeding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but but go. but it is, but it is your. Pet. Did I say that out loud? I'm just yeah, <laughs> yeah. No. yeah. It, it it is, but but it but it is an animal that you you know that you get something out of. Yeah, you absolutely. Know? Yeah. So so it's it's very rewarding the instant instant gratification of posting a show and you know six ten twelve hours later you have comments hopefully people yeah. will write something positive negative for the most part i mean the, the comments i get on the podcast site them itself are, are some of the best comments mm-hmm. i mean they're so smart yeah. and and fun and funny you, you guys know and mm-hmm. it's so mm-hmm. let alone the emails i get yeah. i mean i just i just 
talked about this where someone sent me an email after hearing a show of mine who was an artist who was having who was having trouble painting he was sort of blocked he had no good ideas and he put my show on and he heard sort of a moment of joy with of, within something i was doing and he realized that i was doing it just to do it and just that was enough of a payment you know mm-hmm. that joy was enough and he got his stuff out and started painting i mean i you know, talking about tears i i was i was you know Aww. tearing up because it was like how 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 dare I have that kind of an influence yeah. on someone? You know, a, str- a stranger. <laughs> but it's true that you, know, you are you're okay. very inspiring. Just uh, to me, mostly in the idea that you you take a medium, you take this a podcast that's been done over and over and over again mm. in a hundred different formats, and you turn it on its head and you manage to do something creative with it and artistic. Right. And personally speaking, that's one of the reasons why I love to listen to it. Because like Steve said, you listen and you're like, wow, I never would have thought to do that. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's really cool. I like I like to reward people that pay attention i like to keep people guessing and mm. you can never make an assumption as to what's coming up next i mean just two weeks ago i did a show that was ukrainian songs yes and me with an accent sort of talking yeah. about weird stuff no introduction <laughs> no outro and i knew that that the listener would kind of be waiting like when is the intro gonna ha- when exactly. is the intro yeah. gonna where is the to do that you know remotely it, it was a sense of power, which is kind of fun. <laughs> but also, just future episodes, you will never know what's coming next. Right. And I just yeah. love that. And I you're, love that. you're treating the audience like they're, like they're intelligent people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. that's the way to do it. Yeah, hopefully. And, and you know, I want that kind of a listener. Someone yeah. else who wants to have a formatted show that's the same every week, and that's totally your prerogative if you enjoy having... We kind of like know. that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, if you, yeah. It's easier. <laughs> and it totally makes sense. It totally makes sense. Um, what's nice for me is that little bit of ADD that maybe I have, you know, it provides, okay, you know what? I don't want to do a religious moron this week. Yeah. I would rather, you know, speak backwards. Okay, so the next yeah. five minutes we're going to be talking backwards. <laughs> okay, how do we do that? You know, and again, it's 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 that it's that direct sometimes where I'll just I'll just get off on a whim. You know, Donna Misinformation, who's my yeah. you know, sort of uh, partner tech person, she'll see me doing this stuff and just be like, "Where is this coming from?" I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you need material. It yeah. comes from somewhere. So yeah. So so I just wanted to let you know that the. Uh, on Facebook, the number one podcast that people tell me to listen to is yours, as if I need oh, really? to hear that. But yeah, oh, like, hey, nice. have you heard of this? Have you just, you as if this? you didn't weep together yeah. uh, just yes. a year ago. I cried in his lap last year, okay? <laughs> I think I know he has a podcast. <laughs> oh, that's nice to yeah. know. Wow. Yeah. How, how addictive is Facebook, man? I oh, mean, I like, forget yeah, it. To be really able scary. to put stuff up. Are we Facebook friends? I don't know. I think so. Should be. Should be. Oh, yeah. yeah, get on that. Cool. Um, <laughs> No, I, 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 it's the whole, the whole thing again. That instant feedback, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think we talked about this last year. If it, I used to put an album out once every two years, and have to wait for months to months to to get some response. Right now, it's you put a podcast out twelve hours later. Now you put something in your status bar, right. you get fifty responses yeah. mm-hmm. to it. You yeah. know, some kind yeah. of a, oh, uh, just finished. You know, writing Ruthenium. So you'll get, you know, boom. And it's like, it's, it's the, my personality is such that it's, it's a dangerous place to be in. You know, yeah. that kind of like, love me personality that like, you know, <laughs> please say, say it's okay. We're, we're, we're like 10 years away from literally being wired into each other. Oh, right? it's, it's coming. You know, it's it's coming. coming. I think, no I think, question. yeah. I mean, they talk about having the equivalent of Google, sort of a wireless Google in your, in your head, yeah. you know, which will redefine what 
knowledge is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that it'll be more right. about how you use it as opposed to what you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, Up- upgrading might be a problem, but a friend of mine well, said, I won't be the first to put it in, but I'll put it in. I'll be the first. <laughs> I, I, I said this many times and Steve will edit this probably. I want my iPhone to be surgically implanted in my head because it's, it's a part of my being now. You know, like I, I have, right. I've merged with my electronics. Well, it, it's on its way. I mean, if you figure they get smaller and smaller, you get them to a cellular level, you, you get it so that it's going into some kind of direct, you know, pineal nerve or whatever it needs to be into <laughs> yeah. so that you have an ocular thing, you have an ear thing, and you just, you know, somehow you'll be able to, again, I don't think this is any kind of a singularity BS no. thing. You no. know, I think it's a practical, just mechanical yeah. question of having a, yeah, right. you know, you have a, a wireless feed, you know, up your butt essentially, and it's, yeah. uh, why go. not? A, a why really not? good friend of mine was saying, you know, he's like, you know, if we can make texting the kind of thing, if I don't have to te- text in and send it to someone, if I can think it and send it to someone, yeah. that's telepathy. Yeah. Well, it's you know? already, it's, we're already as close to telepathy. You know, the fact that you hold up this little box to your face yeah. and you can talk to someone across the planet, yeah. you know, let alone texting. Yeah. yeah. Sure. That's, yeah, we will so sooner get to actual magic. We already have actual magic. Yeah. Right. But anything resembling telepathy will be. Mechanical. Yeah, I mean, any sufficiently advanced technologies indistinguishable from magic. I can't say it. This is why. This is why I love. I was going to go to Bob and go, Bob. What's that cool quote you know? And Rebecca's like, I'm a geek too. <laughs> you have to wear a Nehru jacket while you say that, though. So that's the kind well, of see, cool. but the audience can't tell that I'm using my iPhone to look it up right now. <laughs> so. right. I'm not. If you ever saw Ghost in the Machine? Ghost in the Machine is uh, animated science fiction uh, show. Really, pretty good show. I really liked it. Everybody had uh, had a, a robo brain basically right. and uh, people certain hackers were smart enough they were going around hacking people's brains mm-hmm. so what you saw was not really there so it was pretty interesting that you have all this great technology in your head and someone's going around just hacking oh there'll be repercussions like there always yeah. is there's always some price risk that benefit, we pay right? risk yeah. benefit, I mean, we'll, like we'll, we'll lose privacy we'll lose you know, I mean, I think the annoying cell phone restaurant person will be magnified to whatever extent uh, it will yeah. be. Or maybe not. Oh maybe it'll be so internalized that you'll be able to have conversations and without. We'll be less able to tell the schizophrenics from the people talking on their cell phones. I have this. I have it's this already I, bad. I right? have this idea that, that cities should hand out, you know, just little little phones for crazy people so you don't feel yeah. quite as bad. Because oh wouldn't you know, like you see the person in the corner and you think insane, you know, homeless or right. cell phone. Yeah. Maybe like a cell phone. Oh, good. Yeah. And you kind of relax. They should just hand out little, you know, phones. Phones, like fake, phones. Can, fake phones yeah. that they just you know put it in the person's ear so that okay they have nine sweaters on but maybe they're making a call. <laughs> George, really? <laughs> George, that's your solution to like crazy homeless I people. Think I think it's a cheap. It's not a solution. It's just to make myself feel better, which is the most. So you can ignore thing. them easier. It's just a way to mollify the situation. Or, so he feels actually, better. Actually, what, we do, what we can do is then, since they have the phones, we can connect homeless people in different cities and they can talk to each other as if they're actually having a conversation. So yeah. you have Boston homeless crazy people talking to New York homeless people, and maybe they can invent some kind of a, thing, right. a hive mind you know across the entire country right. and they take over the planet yeah well that's yeah. just it yeah it becomes this automaton sure. Sure. <laughs> but the big problem now is people with the cell phones in the ear so they're talking on the cell phone but they're not holding a cell phone up to their right. head so yeah, you think see, that's crazy. what we've been talking about the last 10 yeah. minutes actually yeah no but he was comparing <laughs> the cell phone people to the no cell phone people but yeah, now no. you have cell phone people who you can't tell have a cell phone. Right. Yeah, we we right. know now. It's we know the body posture. We know the head tilt. But we, there isn't much of one, though. There is when you're holding a cell phone to your head, but there isn't much of a posture or head tilt when you're talking into your earpiece. It, it can be Bluetooth indistinguishable. When it, we, people at work have these, you know, just ear devices, and they're walking around work doing their things, and if, the way you know that if they're on the phone or not, they'll put their hand on their head, mm-hmm. walk around, really? I'm on what? the phone. Yeah, that's what they do. 
Wow. So they do. This means I'm on the phone. <laughs> I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. It's I'm just my crazy. hand on my head. I, you know what I want? I want a big flashing red siren light when I'm on the phone. Because they'll see someone coming and like, you know, you look like they may have to engage in a conversation with a person, but it's like, okay, so I know they're on the phone. God, that's right. the perfect way to dodge someone you don't want to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I like to instead of instead of using punctuation, I just use you know the old uh, uh, communic- CB thing. You know, Roger over. <laughs> or, yeah, so that'll that'll make it obvious. Yeah, on phone instead of periods. I just say that. Yeah. So how are you? On phone. <laughs> oh, he said that. On phone. <laughs> that works for me. That works. We have this new segment that we're doing, Who's sure. That Noisy, and, and each week we play a different intro. Okay. And we're getting submissions from our listeners. Okay. Uh, but we're also soliciting um, submissions from, you from know, famous pe- people, from musicians and okay. stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah you sure. obviously you'd be perfect for. It. I mean, just okay. It's really whatever you want to do. And all you have to say is who's that noisy at some point. At some point. Oh, I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whatever We've had submissions from seconds, three 45? seconds to ninety seconds. Ninety seconds. That's, that's probably a bit long. That's a bit long. <laughs> Some guys said, yeah, like a five minute thing." I'm like, can you cut that down a little?" Bit? <laughs> but what's our? We favorite? appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> right. Believe me. Yeah. My favorite's a five year old uh, little kid, the little British, the British kid. kid. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that noisy. <laughs> he was great. Well, so because the kid was brilliantly and adorably English. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When, when I was in London, clear? the cutest thing I ever heard was, "Well, for, I was in London a couple years ago, and." Uh, uh, the best compliment I ever got was one person asked me for directions, which was like, thank you. Said, Do you know which way is that I'm looking for the uh, – and I said, I'm, I'm from New Jersey. I'm sorry. <laughs> and they were like, oh. The I New said, Jersey. Is that near Liverpool? Yeah, So that was the first thing. But this, this little girl, you know, as I was sort of defraying the, uh, the, the request, this, this woman walked by and she had leopard print. Uh, like stretch pants oh, so she walked by in one direction and there was a, a woman with her daughter walking in the other direction and a little girl looked at the lady and she said mommy that lady looks like a tiger <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just melted I was like oh I am in Great Britain yeah. oh, oh so nice I've got to go there so, so bad nice. <laughs> totally totally yeah well, George, it's always a pleasure. We have to, you know, do this more often than once a year. Yes, yeah. please, anytime, anytime. Yeah. yeah, I, you know, being being a musician, it's nice because I essentially, you know, work Friday, Saturday, <laughs> so that, that allows me to do the thirty-seven other projects that I do. So awesome. anytime, because it's a real honor. And please keep doing what you're doing. And Ditto. you guys you are always Ditto. the same thing. People that listen to my show all the time. Well, of course, that's to you. Well, of course, that's to you. And it's like you don't have to say it. <laughs> yeah. So so thank you for doing what you guys do. Oh, God, it, it, means, it means everything. So Thank you. Uh, thank, you. Thank, you. thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a special science fiction this week. We have four items, and these are all little-known facts about scientists. Got it. All right. Again, three true, one fake. Ready? Yes. Item number one, Benjamin Franklin published Poor Richard's Almanac under the alter ego of a poor man named Richard Saunders. Item number two, Susan Jocelyn Bell Burnell is credited with the discovery of pulsars, rotating neutron stars, but her advisor, Anthony Hewish, was awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery. 
Item number three, Galileo Galilei became blind later in life as a consequence of looking at sunspots through his telescope. Item number four, Louis Pasteur refused to shake anyone's hand for fear of catching germs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Bob, go first. Okay. Um, Benjamin Franklin. So we use a pen name, Richard Saunders. That that name rings a bell, Richard Saunders. <laughs> mm. I'll come back. I'll come back to that. Susan Jocelyn Bell. Yeah, she discovered pulsars, and uh, it's fu- it's funny. She, but yeah, that her advisor being the wait the Nobel Prize. E wow, I I can see that happen. I guess how terrible would that be if you actually do it and your your silly advisor gets it instead of you? Mm, wow. <laughs> uh, that's going back to the. Um, Oh, geez. Was that the 60s, I think? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I could see maybe a little sexism even back in the 60s with that. Possibly. I don't know. Uh, Galileo. Oh, God. It, I, I seem to remember him being having bad sight, studying sunspots through his telescope. Wait. Are you implying that he's got no filter? I'm not implying that at all, no. Hmm. Okay. I don't know about that one. Pasteur um, <laughs> catching germs. That's kind of funny. This is tough. I'm going to go with the, with Galileo. I don't think that this doesn't sound right to me. And they, I mean, you don't. I mean, don't don't they just um, reflect an image of the sun onto a surface of something and to look at the sunspots? You're not actually looking directly through it back then, not through a, a primitive telescope, but the sun. That's rubbing me the wrong way for some reason. I'm going to say Galileo is f- fiction. Okay, Jay. Okay. Benjamin Franklin published Poor Richard's Almanac under the alter ego of poor man named Richard Saunders. That is correct. Susan Jocelyn Bell Burnell, credited with discovery of pulsars. Uh, her advisor was awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery. Wow. I don't, I don't know about that. The Galileo Galilei one, I do remember reading that he, he did go blind or partially blind, but wasn't he in prison at the time? The House of Rust. Yeah, he was in house arrest. Oh, if he was in house arrest, then he would still have access to his stuff, right? Yeah, I, I, that that totally rings a bell. But you know that the wrinkle of how he went blind. Yeah. Oh, that's a good. That's really good, Steve. Louis Pasteur refused to shake anyone's hand for fear of catching germs. I mean, man, that is that's awesome. And it sounds <laughs> that sounds familiar too. The only one I'm not sure about. For real, not sure is number two. I mean, I, I I'm I'm, doing, I'm trying to do the GWB. Routine. Yeah, go, go with Bob. <laughs> Just use your own knowledge and experience. All right, you, I'm going to go with my gut. Use my gut, the force, Jay. My gut said, my gut said to me that I think I would have known if Galileo went blind because of looking at sunspots. And I think that one is fake, and the Bob thing affected me by fifty percent. There you go. Okay, Evan. Yeah, that was the one I was uh, thinking about too. Uh, of of all of these, I'm pretty sure about the Benjamin Franklin one, Richard Saunders. I don't quite, I don't quite remember that last name, but I think that's right. And then the uh, Susan Jocelyn Bell Burnell one. Uh, I knew about that. Um, I didn't realize her advisor won the award, and I didn't know his name was Anthony Hewish because he doesn't look Hewish. And uh, <laughs> but I didn't see the Galileo Galilei being blind coming my way. I'm throwing in as many puns here, but I'm running out. Um, so I'll I'll go with the crowd. Galileo. Fiction. Okay. Follower. All right. Let's go take <laughs> this in order. Benjamin Franklin published Poor Richard's Almanac under the alter ego of a poor man named Richard Saunders. And that one is 
Science. Science. Who knew Richard Saunders was so famous? <laughs> I had to I'm use that one because of the name, obviously. Yeah, well, I totally, yeah. I knew that one, absolutely knew that one. Really? Cool, yeah. Jay. Even you knew the name Richard Saunders? I did. I mean, I did right now as you said it. I'm like, oh, yeah. 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 He had so many publishing <laughs> pseudonyms. He was great yes. that way. He was able to, to take on the, the personality of the people that he would write as, you know, like 30 it was, it was a common practice, and it enabled famous people, you know, to speak more freely because they were writing under an alter ego. Mm-hmm. Yep. Let's go on to item number two. Susan Jocelyn Bell Burnell is credited with the discovery of pulsars, but her advisor, Anthony Hewish, was awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery. And that one is... Science. Oh, oh man, that's man. what a she got the Bob, that she stinks. Got the Harsh. Yeah, she got the Bob, we won but this week. <laughs> oh well, yeah, clean sweep, Dave. I don't know. Has it been determined yet? No, I know it. 1974. Anthony Hewish shared the Nobel Prize with Sir Martin Ryle, also from Cambridge, uh, and Jocelyn Bell was completely ignored because she was a student or something. Steve, is that why? Yeah, she was you know junior to him in the lab. Now, generally speaking. You know, your the senior researcher, the advisor would would you know gets to soak off the the credit from whatever, whoever working underneath them, the work that they do. But the person working underneath them doesn't get completely ignored or left out, right? You get they get credit too. Sure, yeah. And it's largely considered that you know because she was a woman and it was the 1960s when this happened. Although again, the, the Nobel Prize wasn't until the 1970s that uh, that played a role in her being completely ignored in the Nobel Prize. Uh, very similar, in fact, to many other science heroines who were uh, ignored in their work. I think the most famous one is probably Rosalind Franklin. You guys know what she contributed to? Uh, um, yeah, um, mints. Her x-ray uh, images of atoms were very critical in the discovery of the double helix of DNA ooh, by Watson ah. Frick. But she also was completely asked out of the uh, of the Nobel Prize or of any recognition until much later, you know, and then she died young and it really wasn't until after she died that um, she really started to get um, credit, you know, for, for her role in the discovery. Too late. Right. Let's so, go on to number three. Ooh. Galileo Galilei became blind later in life as a consequence of studying sunspots through his telescope. You guys all think that one is the fiction. Yes, we do, Steve. Hmm. And that one... Is say it fiction. Yes, yeah, baby, Bob. Thank you. That's what my gut told <laughs> me. <first>. GWB. <laughs> uh, Galileo did indeed go blind later in life, and it is a common myth that it was from looking at sunspots. It was from however, however, that is almost <laughs> certainly not true. Most of his sunspot uh, gazing was many, many years before he went blind, and it is believed that he almost certainly went blind through either glaucoma or cataracts. Oh, okay. Right. Didn't he he also have other really bad... He had, like, a couple of other things that were going wrong at the time. He was pretty sick at that point. Well, you know, he lived a long time ago, and he got... And he lived to an old age in his seventies. And wow, you know, if you if you were in your seventies in the fifteen hundreds, I'm sure there was a ton of stuff wrong with you. I mean, he beat you know, the curve at that point. That's for sure. Didn't exactly have wow. effective health care back then, but yeah. <laughs> Which means that Louis Pasteur refused to shake anyone's hand for fear of catching germs is science. <laughs> Guy that's was great. a uh, what's that show? Um, Monk. Monk, you guys watch yeah. Monk? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Guys, like totally neurotic. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, 
it's it's it's, it's ironic. You know, Pasteur was phobic about germs. I don't think it's ironic at all. <laughs> it's <smart. laughs> you know, it's it makes perfect sense. I guess so. I guess from a certain point of view. So good job, everyone. I thought that would be a bit tricky. You know, it was a bit tricky. There was enough to think about there. Yeah, it was. It still was, Steve. Just because I you, you we zeroed in on the galley. Yeah. There. So Jay, can you please regale us with a skeptical quote? Yes, I will. This quote was sent in by Alexis Coleman on Facebook. I've been really lucky with people sending me good quotes because I haven't been finding any that I like. And this is a quote from Harry Houdini. I don't think I've quoted Harry Houdini before. Harry said, or wrote, My brain is the key that sets my mind free. Harry Houdini. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. That's good. That's a good. Yeah, we definitely. Houdini deserves to be quoted. Okay, so a quick message. Uh, we'd like to send a shout out to our friends at Connecticut Drinking Skeptically and their monthly meetup group. And uh, if you go to the website skeptics.meetup.com, uh, you will find them. And they have a uh, another meeting come up on April fifteenth, and they're pretty good about having these every month and a good uh, selection of speakers and presenters. Um, so for those of you who's the can, speaker on the 15th uh, to be determined as soon as they get the venue uh, settled so that information is coming soon probably in the next week or so so just tune into the uh, to the website and you'll have all the information there it's you know, not impossible that a rogue may be showing up at these meetings from time to time I may have suggested that perhaps I might show up to the next meeting we'll see how it goes it is just two days before Nexus but uh and I know some of the folks from Drinking Skeptically will be coming to Nexus. As Steve, what's this event. Nexus thing I keep hearing about? Uh, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. This is the uh, the second such conference. Jay will be appearing naked yep. live on stage. It will happen wow. at th- that morning at some point. I may be alone in my bathroom. Right, we're calling this the Nexus 2010, the full Monty. <laughs> well, in my case, that'd be a half Monty, Steve. Okay. Uh, or the Peroni Monty, but... <laughs> well, thanks for joining me again this week, guys. Our pleasure. Well done. Thanks, Steve. Hopefully next week we won't have any more computer problems. Let's hope. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. <laughs>